Good morning. Glad to be here. As Sean said, we've been here a couple of times and uh, let our, our team of college students who came here, we, <clears throat> when we got here, well, it's been, I think, about 12 years maybe when we came with our college group and uh, did some street evangelism in Chicago and some other things in the, the area and then came out here. I just asked Mike, you know, would you, would you have anything for us to do? And so we got here, he had this, it was like a scroll, you know, he unrolled this, this list of things to do. He said, now look, I, I know you won't be able to get all these things done, and I just handed the list to one of my interns, and I said, make sure all this gets done. And, uh, and sure enough, our, our students just dug in, and, and uh, they did a great job. I was proud of them. One of our students got in the car uh, when we were done one day after, after a break. He goes, oh, I've never worked this hard in my life. <laughs> I said, well, number one, that's sad that you've never worked this hard in your life. And number two, good job. I'm glad that you're, that you're working hard. So that, that part's good. Um, we, uh, we're very grateful for your pastor and his ministry to us and in our lives. Uh, he performed our wedding and did our premarital counseling, was our college pastor when we were uh, in Lincoln at uh, the church there and on, on at uh, University of Nebraska. And uh, so I'm just so, so uh, grateful to him and his influence in my life, not only then, but as that continues on today, the encouragement that he is to me. So I just kind of, uh, commend to you what you already know, that you have a phenomenal pastor and a uh, pastor's wife, and uh, just be grateful and, and thankful and, and uh, just encourage him in whatever ways that you can. I'm so thrilled that they're on this trip right now that they're on. That was part of the reason that I wanted to be here, because if I can fill the pulpit and help facilitate the, the trip that they're going on in any way, that's incredible. Uh, I did offer to carry their bags and go with them, but I was rebuffed. So um, <clears throat> we turned this into a little family vacation. And uh, we've kind of been doing the, doing the touristy thing. My wife, Corey, and uh, six of our nine kids. Uh, let's see, four out of nine children have uh, said Happy Father's Day to me. So I just want to, just if anyone else wanted to <laughs> sing. Okay. Sing. We'll get there. I think we'll get to nine. I called my dad last night because I'm prone to forget. So I called him last night, and I talked to him. I said, oh, by the way, happy Father's Day. Now I don't have to call you tomorrow. So <laughs> he said, okay, that'll, that'll work. Uh, Jim Gaffigan says that uh, big families are like waterbeds. You used to see them everywhere, and now they're just kind of weird. So that's the way we look at our big family. So happy Father's Day to all of you dads. And, of course, we all have different uh, experiences with our dads. I'm going to find a place to put my water here. Uh, we all have different experiences with our dads. Some of us have great dads. Some of us maybe not so great experiences or memories with our dads. Some of us have dads who have, have passed, and so this is a day to remember them in a, in a special way. But whatever your experience with your own father, uh, we can agree that the role of the father is of great importance, right? Um, we're, in a, in, we're in desperate need in our culture and our day and age of good and godly fathers. In fact, I think if we look around at our culture and we look uh, at a lot of the problems that we have, a lot of them are due to the breakdown of the family and to the absence of fathers. And that's certainly demonstrated in our community in the Birmingham area and I think would be true uh, here as well and around the country. But unfortunately, we have a society that kind of attacks the, the role of the father or at least belittles it. And not just fatherhood, but manhood in general is under attack, masculinity. And um, 
I want to give you a little sneak peek into the contrasting worldviews that I deal with as a, as a pastor of student ministries working with high school and, and college students. I'm trying to prepare high schoolers to go out into the big bad world, and I'm trying to kind of contrast for our college students some of the things that they're hearing out in the world or in the college classroom with what Scripture says. So here's a sneak peek. The counseling department at the University of Texas at Austin has decided that the promotion of masculinity is a mental health crisis. The program argues that men, quote, suffer when they are told to act like a man or when they are encouraged to fulfill traditional gender roles such as being successful or the breadwinner. These are all in quotes, right? So here in Texas, of all places, I thought Texas was supposed to be like cowboys and rough and tough men, right? But I found apparently they've discovered that it's very damaging to try to get men to act like, well, men. In contrast, what we're studying with the high school men, young men in our ministry, is a book called Whatever Happened to Manhood, subtitled A Return to Biblical Manhood. This is what we're trying to encourage. This is what we're trying to engender in them and engage them in. This is one of the things they're hearing from their book. The state of affairs for males is increasingly dark. Manliness is frankly unwelcome in most places. The rise of high regard by some for effeminate and homosexual behavior coupled with active disdain from the new feminists has forced masculinity into cultural retreat. Tragically, wanton promiscuity is the only aspect of maleness to escape emasculation. Of course, promiscuity is not a real sign of manhood, but rather an unbiblical selfish pretense. And so this is kind of the, the battle that we find ourselves in. This is where we're at in our culture. And, and I want to take a little bit of time this morning to look at uh, a tremendous example of biblical manhood. Acts chapter 6, uh, Luke's, Luke tells us that the word of God was spreading and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, verse 7 says. One, one exciting thing that was happening in the book of Acts is all these people, masses of people, coming to salvation. And even it says a great many of the priests were being saved. Can you imagine uh, what a stir that must have caused? I love it. Thousands of Jews had been saved. Some commentators say as many as 20,000 at this time already. And it seemed that for a time people were intent to kind of leave this new religion alone, not a lot of initial uh, persecution. Uh, they seem to respect to a certain amount the, the Christian's lifestyle, just not their Lord. But finally, the Jews of Jerusalem couldn't stand hearing the gospel in the name of Jesus any longer, and so they would flog the apostles for preaching the name of Christ. But the first person murdered for preaching was not an apostle. We know this man. We see in chapter 6 the establishment of a group that we still have in churches today, the role, the office of deacon. And this young deacon became an outspoken apologist. Listen while I share a little bit of Stephen's story. Stephen was a man full of grace and power. He performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Uh, one day, some men from the synagogue started to debate him. But, verse 10 tells us, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen. Does that sound familiar? 
if you can't find something actually wrong with the person's life or actually wrong with the person's message, lie about it. That's exactly what they did with Christ. And so they lied about Stephen. They said, we heard him blaspheme Moses and God. And that got people stirred up, the elders, the teachers of the law. And so they arrested Stephen and they brought him before the high council. And the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? And in response to that question, Stephen launches into what becomes the longest sermon recorded in the New Testament. And it is amazing. Stephen's reply, starting in the beginning of chapter 7, he says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. And he begins to talk about their ancestor Abraham. And he talks about how Abraham became the father of Isaac. And he talks about Jacob, the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. He basically gives them a, a kind of a Jewish history lesson. He moves on to the great icon of the Jewish faith, Moses, through whom the law came to the Jewish people, who, by the way, they had just accused him of blaspheming Moses. So now in his sermon, he's exalting Moses, and he's explaining how important Moses was and, and what a man of God and how used of God Moses was. So he's invalidating the claim that they were making against him. He says that by means of many one. Miraculous signs, Moses led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses told the people, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people. He talks about how Moses received life-giving words at Mount Sinai to pass on to us. But then he says, our ancestors refused to listen to Moses, and God turned away from them. He talks about David and how David found favor with God and the promises that David received. And then as we come to verse 51, Stephen is going to take all of this history, all of this Jewish history. This is all off the top of his head, by the way. He's just preaching an impromptu sermon. So I don't know how you're doing with your daily devotions or being in the Word or if you're ready to just, you know, hand the mic over, if you're just ready to go. Right? See, I have my notes with me. But this is just like on the spot. He knows the word of God. He knows the God of the word. He knows the history of his people and how God has worked. He's ready for this moment. And then as you come to verse 51, he, he takes all of this history and everything that he said and he connects it to what's happening in his own time with his own people in his own place to really what's happening in the very moment that they're in. And isn't that kind of our job? Isn't that kind of the goal? to take the word of God, to take the gospel that's been implanted in us and to apply it to the people that we come into contact with, to the people that we touch day by day, to our sphere of influence. Follow along in verses 51 to 59 of chapter 7 with me. <clears throat> Starts out warm and fuzzy in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. See, as Stephen had gone through his message up to this point, they probably would have agreed with an awful lot of it. They would have nodded and given hearty approval and amened 
the portions about Joseph and David and Moses. But as he moved on to talk about the Messiah, the Messiah that the Jews had been longing for, that they had been looking for, what he told them was, Messiah has already come. And you betrayed him. And you murdered him. And the Jewish leaders and the crowd that had gathered basically had two choices at that point. And people have two choices every time they hear the gospel. The first choice for this crowd was to repent and to say, you're right. I can't believe we've done this horrible thing. Fall on their knees and to, to beg God for forgiveness and join this new movement. The other option, and the option that they chose, is to shut Stephen up. Verse 54 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called out on the as he called on the Lord and said, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." Having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Stephen's life was characterized by submission to the Spirit, by wisdom, and by faith fueled power he had incredible boldness and courage and this is what we need today we need these kind of men in our churches we need these kind of men in our homes with this kind of courage with this kind of boldness pastor and author Hughes says one of the greatest and most damaging trends of recent decades is the abdication of male spiritual leadership in the church and the home. He asked the question, where are the men who are leading their families to a closer walk with God? Where are the men who set a positive example of prayer, Bible reading, Bible study, and local church involvement? He goes on to talk about how many men are content to be wage earners providing for their families, and that's good and noble. Many are not even doing that. But he laments the fact that you can't lead your family spiritually to a place where you haven't been. Then unless we're growing in our faith, then unless we know the word of God, we're going to struggle and probably fail to lead our families. He says, children are watching this. They learn from their dad that spiritual pursuits are not important. Instead, making money and buying things is what's most important. Thus, the children who grow up in homes where the father isn't a spiritual leader depart from the faith their father professed to have. Dads, it's our job to train our children. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6 says, 
These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, this is kind of what our life is permeated by, is the word of God, the glory of God in all things. We were at the Science Museum yesterday, Museum of Science and, and Industry. The kids love it. So much fun to do. You, you, can't, you just can't do it in a day. You can't get through all of these things. And uh, some of the things that we were seeing is just talking about nature and how incredible it is. And it's kind of identifying these patterns in nature. You know, you, you see this spiral pattern in nature. You see the golden ratio, ratio repeated in, in different places and, and different ways. And I was just waiting for, like, a sign that said, so isn't God amazing? Right? I mean, look at, look at our creator. It's so evident in all of these things and all of these ways. But guess what? That's not there. That's got to be supplied by us. We're in a world that doesn't honor our God, that doesn't worship our God or even recognize our God. If you're trusting school to instill biblical principles in your kids, it's probably not going to happen unless you've got them somewhere other than normal public schools. If you're trusting the world around them and their peers to just instill morality and you know, goodness in their hearts, hey, that's not where it comes from. Moms and dads, parents, day in and day out doing this. Grandparents, what an incredible opportunity. I can't wait to be a grandparent because uh, I, I told my kids it's going to be like all of the fun, like, like my, my whole like level of fun, but none of the discipline. Right? I, I'm not, I don't plan, you know, I'm just going to let, I'm going to like spoil them like crazy, send them home. It's going to be terrible. They're going to be like, what did you do to our child? I'm like, we had a great time. That's what I'm going <laughs> to. No, but... But grandparents, aunts, uncles, I mean, we, we have the opportunity to impact. I mean, even Vacation Bible School, what an incredible opportunity. I don't know how it is for, for you all, but for us, that was one of our biggest missionary endeavors of the year. One of the biggest outreach opportunities that we had in the community to, to come and, and share the gospel with these kids every day and in every way. For us, it seemed like gospel was in everything. It's like the crafts is the gospel and the story is the gospel and the games are the gospel. And it's just, it's just kind of permeates the whole thing. And it's phenomenal. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Fathers in the home, you're primarily responsible for training children. Bring them up. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's Ephesians 6. It's also the father's responsibility to discipline. This is severely lacking. We have a tremendous problem in our homes today. I heard a lady say the other day, she's doing a little... A little comedy thing. She said, uh, I was at Walmart the other day, and I got so frustrated with the boys, I just grabbed a fly swatter, and I swatted them, and that's when I realized, I don't have kids. <laughs> so, have <laughs> you ever had that experience? You're, you're out in public, and you're like, uh, I can help discipline those kids if you need me to. Like, be careful. You get yourself in trouble, right? That's our job as parents. Proverbs 13, he who spares his rod hates his son. Proverbs twenty two fifteen foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, do not withhold correction from a child. Okay. Proverbs 29, the rod and rebuke gives wisdom. Proverbs 29, 17, correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. If we're faithful, if we're faithful to discipline, if we're faithful to correct... The role of father is of utmost importance. 
See if you recognize this quote. I love this from, from William Carey. He says, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. I think that's one of the greatest fears we need to have as fathers. We might succeed in our job. We might succeed in the world's eyes. We might succeed in all these different realms. But if we lose our family, if we fail our children, if we fail to lead spiritually, we've been successful at things that don't matter. Now note back in Acts chapter 7 and chapter 6 that Stephen is not all fire, okay? We want to teach our kids, I think especially my sons, I want to teach them to be bold. I want to teach them to be strong. I want to teach them to be courageous. I have, I, I have five wrestlers, okay? So I'm, I'm raising manly men. They're, you know, dominating other men on the wrestling mat, or as I tell my son, wearing tight clothes and rolling around with other guys. My, my, oldest, son, my oldest son does not appreciate that description of the sport of wrestling, okay? So, so you know, we're, we're, trying, we're, we're all about working out. We're all about trying to get them in, in shape and strong and, and getting their wrestling down and, and those kind of things. That's a good manly thing to do. But what if we have boldness and courage and, and, and energy and strength and fire and all these things, but we're missing the heart? Stephen's the total package. He had the heart. He was a humble servant. Look at some of the descriptions of him. He's full of grace. He has faith, and he's described as having the, the face of an angel. And really, what is a deacon? A deacon is a servant. That's what the word means. Now, I want to make a note here. You always have to be careful of the way Hollywood portrays biblical characters. Have you ever noticed this? If you watch a, a Bible version of a story, there's usually, you've you got to kind of find the things that are a little off and correct for them. Uh, I don't know if any of you watched the series a while back, a, a few years ago, AD, The Bible Continues. I kind of enjoyed that. I thought there were some good things in it. Um, I, think, I think when shows like that come up, they can be a springboard for the gospel and make great opportunities to talk to our, our neighbors and coworkers and, and things about the gospel. Uh, I, I have a, an acquaintance who served as a consultant for that series, and he was relating to me kind of the way that the conversations would go. He said the producers would call him, and, uh, you know, they want to kind of verify and make sure things are following the Bible, so to speak. And uh, they said, okay, so we have this scene where Peter's talking to his son, and he said, wait, 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 uh, Peter had a son? <laughs> and they said, well, uh, could he have had a son? And he said, well... The Bible doesn't say. I guess he could have had a son. And they said, okay, so in the scene, Peter's talking to his son. <laughs> so that's kind, of the way, that's kind of the way they do these things, right? Well, in AD, the, way, the, the Bible continues, the, the way it works with Stephen is Stephen's kind of portrayed as uh, a very angry man, okay? He he's just kind of comes across as just this harsh, like almost like fire-breathing you know, televangelist, you know, kind of like, I don't even know, a revivalist kind of guy. Uh, I just don't, that's not the way I see Stephen. I see strength in this message. I see boldness. Uh, I see judgment even and, and, and condemnation. But that's not what I see in Stephen. Stephen was bold and passionate. He wasn't angry. He's described in chapter 6 as full of grace. He went from synagogue to synagogue in Jerusalem preaching the gospel and doing miracles. 
helping people, healing people. And in order to stop them, as I said earlier, they had to do exactly what they had to do with Christ. They had to lie about him because there was no handle to get a hold of. There was no uh, thing that they could point to that he was doing wrong. And I guess my point is, fathers, we want to give our children a legacy of humble service, of grace, of kindness. Stephen demonstrates real strength in his character as much as in his preaching. There are too many men who are one thing in the pulpit and another thing when they're out of it. When the high priest asked Stephen, are these things true? Stephen's answer to the question came in the form of this Jewish history lesson about the great story of redemption. And Stephen doesn't respond to these lies by trying to prove himself uh, trying, trying to defend himself, he demonstrates that he's not guilty of blasphemy by summarizing the scripture's record of how God worked with Israel. He uses God's word as his defense. And Stephen's message proved that he was innocent, but it was mainly designed to convict the people present of rebellion and idolatry. In other words, the main goal was the, was the gospel. The main goal was the salvation of the souls. Uh, of, of souls. God, St- Stephen is more concerned with God's reputation than he is with his own reputation. In his message, Stephen accuses the Jews of doing the exact same thing that their fathers did. Look in verse 51 again. Just as their fathers had not listened to the prophets, Stephen says they're stiff necked people who are uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Stephen is commenting on their unwillingness to submit to Christ and to repent of their sin. And what is the Jews' response to Stephen's vision? What is the Jews' response to his rebuke? They're furious with him. It says they're cut to the heart. It was like a doctor had operated on them and and was giving them open-heart surgery. They felt like Stephen could see deep down inside of them. And the hurt was as if someone had, had stabbed you with a knife. They're so angry at really the message of the gospel that they literally gnashed their teeth like animals. And instead of repenting, they cried out with a loud voice and they, it says they stopped up their ears. I, just, I, I find that humorous. As, to me, this is like, you know, a, a three-year-old. La, 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 I'm not listening, I'm not listening. And this is kind of what they did to the gospel, to a sermon in public, right? They just... They're just not going to listen anymore. They just can't take it. It's the power of the gospel. If we're faithful, if we're faithful proclaimers of the gospel, we're going to get some negative response, right? We might even get some persecution. You know what we like to do? This is how we comfort ourselves. Boy, isn't it great to live in America where we don't have persecution, The scripture tells us we will be persecuted. And I kind of think sometimes the reason we think there's not much persecution in America is because we're not doing much proclamation of the gospel, right? As long as we kind of don't talk to anybody about it. I I talked to a guy a while back. um, I was asking him how his new job was going, and and I was asking him about just opportunities there and everything. And he kind of said almost with like like a note of relief, they haven't found out that I'm a Christian yet. And it was kind of like, so that's kind of nice. I don't have that extra added pressure. Well, that's the exact opposite of the way we should look at it, right? We should be 
moving the gospel forward. We should be infiltrating the lives of everyone that we come into contact with as we have opportunity. For Stephen, he knew the situation that he was in and he pressed forward anyway. They rushed upon him, they dragged him outside of the city, and they stoned him. This is how they executed criminals. You know, in, in, in Roman sources, it's interesting. You read in Roman sources about stoning, they basically see it as the result of troublemaking crowds, right? There's rabble-rousers, there's problems, whatever, and this is how they handle it, you know, whatever. You know, at least it quiets things down. But in Jewish sources, stoning is understood as the ideal way to show corporate disdain, okay? If there's an offense, if there's something we want to really show that is unacceptable, we won't allow this, this will not be tolerated, then it's death by stoning. Josephus, when he describes the stoning of Stephen, he just uses one word, savagery. These respected, dignified aristocrats come in on young Stephen, and this is what they do. Now, as I said, maybe we feel disconnected from this message a little bit. I mean, Stephen's the first martyr, so there's some historical value here, but persecution isn't really on our radar, right? To persecute means to harass or punish in a manner designed to injure, grieve, or afflict specifically to cause to suffer because of belief. And, And we don't see a lot of that today. But the truth of the matter is there have been martyrs of the Christian faith in every century since Acts chapter 7 is written. I saw you have some resources from Voice of the Martyrs over here. I would commend those resources to you and the opportunity to minister through those resources. Some historians have estimated that over 50 million individuals have died a martyr's death since the crucifixion of Christ. And it's good for us to be reminded of the history of our faith. And it's good for us to be reminded that martyrdom continues on today. And it's good for us to be willing with open arms to say we're ready and willing to be persecuted, whatever that means. I I, I have friends, I know people who have lost their jobs, who have been ostracized from their family members. Maybe some of you have experienced the negative consequences of a bold proclamation of the gospel. Whatever that is, we need to be ready to embrace it as Stephen was, to have that kind of strength. In Stephen's day, you didn't come to Christ without counting the cost. You didn't come to Christ thinking that you'd get pats on the back from everyone and, hey, it's so wonderful. You knew that you might lose your family, that you might lose your job, that you might lose your life. In fact, consider what history tells us about the apostles. Peter was crucified. It's said upside down because he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Paul was beheaded. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified. Thomas run through with a spear. Luke hanged on an olive tree. Simon crucified. John, the only one to not die a martyr's death, but he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil and escaped, banished to an island where he wrote the book of Revelation and eventually freed to die a natural death. Stephen was stoned. James, the brother of John, was led to a place of martyrdom by his accuser. And and as he was going, he's talking to his accuser and he led his accuser to repentance. 
They had brought in this kind of false accusations kind of thing again, right? And he actually led the guy to the Lord on the way to where he was to be martyred. And so then the guy, in, in just overwhelmed with repentance, announces to everyone, John is innocent. He's right. This is all true. So they were martyred together. <coughs> Philip was scourged, thrown in prison, and then crucified. Matthew was killed with an axe. James, the brother of Jesus, at the age of 94, was beaten, stoned, and had his head smashed by a club because he's faithfully serving the Lord and proclaiming the gospel at the age of 94 as a missionary, as a witness, as a servant of the living God. Matthias, stoned, beheaded. Andrew, crucified. St. Andrew's cross, that X-shaped cross. Mark, dragged to death through the streets by a rope around his neck. Kind of gruesome, all of this, right? What's the point? Men and women of courage is what we're called to be. There's one last thing that I want to ask, and I think this question gets asked by us a lot just in our own life personally, but if we think specifically of this story of Stephen, couldn't we ask the question, where was Jesus? I mean, here's a young man, a great young man, a godly young man, the, the kind of man you, you'd love to have in your church, the kind of man you'd love to have, you know, date your daughter. <clears throat> this good, kind, godly servant of the Lord, he was too young, he was too faithful, he had too much potential. Where is Jesus? Why, why does he allow something this terrible to happen? something this savage to happen. Why? Where was Jesus? Well, the text tells us, right? He's in the story. He's in heaven. He's waiting. The heavens open up. Stephen sees Jesus. Jesus is waiting. He's calling. He's rewarding. He's preparing to say, well done, good and faithful Stephen. Don't ever think in the midst of struggle, don't ever think in the midst of even consequences for faithfulness or the frustrations of life that you've been abandoned by your Lord and Savior. He's there. This is how Ryrie notes Acts chapter 7, verse 55. He says, Amid all this confusion stood the serene figure of Stephen, sustained by the risen Lord, standing on the right hand of God, this position indicates his ministry as a Melchizedekian priest giving sustenance to his people. Stephen fell asleep and was ushered immediately into the presence of his Savior. <coughs> and the story doesn't end there. Notice the first sentence of the next chapter. Stephen is dead, but God's work goes on, and God's work would be carried through the life of a man named Saul, who was standing, holding the witness's clothes, consenting to Stephen's death. And out of this tragedy, Stephen's murder, came Paul. Don't forget to note, if you just want to be really impressed with Stephen, that Luke records Stephen praying two things, which, by the way, are two things that Jesus prayed. Lord, receive my spirit. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. 
So even while he's being murdered, Stephen desired that God would forgive the people of their sin. He was truly full of grace. I've always heard the phrase, I've been told the phrase since early on in my ministry, we need to always be ready to preach, pray, or die. Ever heard that phrase? Always be ready. to. In fact, one time, it was, uh, I think it was an Easter service, and I'm 20, whatever, barely, <clears throat> just kind of starting out in ministry, helping out part-time at a church. I'm sitting in like the second row with my wife, and the pastor says, uh, Matt, why don't you come up and share something from the Word? I mean, we got hundreds of people there on a holiday weekend for the service. Uh, I said, uh, I have no idea what I said. I'm sure it was incoherent. And so at staff meeting, then I, I said, hey, man, like, a little heads up would be nice. He goes, oh, no, you got, if you're going to be in ministry, you've got to always be ready, right? Always be ready to preach, pray, or die. What I think is incredible about that saying when I think about this story is in the span of half an hour, Stephen did all three. He preached. He prayed just like his Lord did, and he died, and he went to his eternal reward. What an incredible thing. What a legacy for us as parents, especially for us as men and as fathers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing of this man and his testimony and his life, boldness to proclaim the gospel. Would you give us that kind of courage? Would you help us as men? in the church to be willing to take the leadership that you have uh, handed to us to to be willing to lead our homes i pray for the young men especially in this body pray that these young men would be passionate for you and for your word and that they would uh, just seek to impact those around them with the gospel it's in your name we pray amen